wrong with us and how God went about making it right so that we could be right with him. How he could declare us righteous in his son, Jesus Christ, by faith in Jesus. And those first four chapters deal with condemnation and with uh, justification. It's about our salvation, how we come to be made right with God. When you get to chapters 5 to 8, you're dealing with another one of those uh, interesting uh, doctrinal terms, sanctification. How God sets us free from our sin and enables us to live in this world the way he desires for us to live. And it's a fascinating passage of Scripture where we're reminded that the Holy Spirit lives in us, and the Holy Spirit enables us to do what God wants us to do. But then you get to chapters 9, 10, and 11, and those are sort of a parenthesis, a parenthetical section, and it deals mostly with Israel that God has chosen Israel. And it may look right now, the nation of Israel, it may look right now that as if God has set them aside and he's only working amongst the Gentile people, but the reality is they are God's chosen people, and he is not through with Israel. And God has a plan and a purpose. It's yet future. It's still to come. But God has a plan and a purpose for Israel. And so those are the three beginning sections of the book of Romans. And then you get to chapter 12. And from chapter 12 to the end of the book, you're looking at practical applications. Because of all these things that I've told you and I've explained to you, Paul says, now I want to apply that to your life. It's like laying a foundation, a doctrinal foundation. And then he comes practically with application to build a structure on top of it. And at the very opening of chapter 12, in the very first two verses of chapter 12, you learn that the most important thing that you can know as a believer in Jesus Christ is the will of God for your life. That's where the joy comes. That's where the fulfillment comes. It's like plugging something into a, to an electrical socket, and suddenly everything comes alive, and the light comes on, and, and there's, this, uh, there's this vibrancy because you get plugged into the will of God. And he begins by telling the people how they can know the will of God. The will of God was always important to the Apostle Paul. For instance, he said that he was an apostle of Christ because of the will of God. He said that he was able to do what he was doing as an apostle of Christ because of the will of God. He even on several occasions will tell us something very specific that is the will of God, not just for him, but for every single one of us. For instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5, This is the general will for everybody. He says it's God's will that we be generous givers. Isn't that amazing? It is God's will that we be generous givers. If you're not a giver, you're not obeying the will of God because he says that is the will of God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says it is God's will that we avoid sexual immorality. Uh, Fornication, which is... Uh, sexual activity before you were married, adultery, which is sexual activity with somebody who is not your spouse, somebody to whom you were married, homosexuality, and all of the other things that are aberrations of God's perfect plan. He says it's God's will that you abstain from sexual immorality. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, he says it's God's will 
that you give thanks in all circumstances. In everything, he says, give thanks, for this is the will of God. That's what the verse says. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God. And so there are those occasions when Paul comes and he says, this is the will of God. But you know, sometimes knowing God's will isn't as specific as being able to point to a verse and say, this is what he tells me to do. I can't tell you how many times over the course of my ministry as a pastor, I've had people ask me questions that go something like this. Pastor, how can I know the will of God for my life? How can I know what I'm supposed to be doing with my life? How can I find purpose and meaning in my life? Well, the Apostle Paul, who's so interested in the will of God, begins this practical section of this book, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, by telling us what is the fundamental key, the very first key of knowing the will of God. Follow along with me, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that, you see that word? So that, in order that, you may prove, that is to approve by testing, that is to judge something to be right or commendable, that is to have discernment about, that you may prove what is that good an acceptable and perfect will of God. In other words, he says God has a will that is good. It's good for you. It's good for others. It's good for your family. It's good for your friends. He says it's acceptable. It's acceptable to him. It's pleasing. The word acceptable is the idea of pleasing to God. And it's perfect. It's fulfilling, it's complete, it's without error, it's full. This word that's translated perfect, the root word gives us our word telescope. We see off in a distance and it brings what's off in a distance up close to us so that we can have fulfillment in it right now. We can see it right now. This is his prescription for how we're to go about finding the will of God. This is the key. This is the very first key. Now, there may be some other things that I would say to you about the will of God beyond this, but this is the very first key to this matter of being uh, or finding the will of God for your life. Um, You know, there was a time when you could go to Cracker Barrel and they would have on the table those little triangular-shaped games. How many of you ever picked one up and played it? Okay. Those little triangular-shaped games had holes, 15 holes that were drilled in it. They had pegs. They were really golf tees, but just pegs that were placed in each of those holes. And then you had to jump a peg and take it out, and you did that. And if you left more than, what was it, three or four, you were an egg moramus, E-G-G, an egg moramus. And the goal was to leave as few as possible. If you could leave just one, the result was that you were a genius Of course, it was my kids who were the geniuses. It was me that was always the egg moramus. It seemed like I always left three or four, sometimes maybe even five, until one day, one day, I got a brilliant idea. I Googled it. (laughs) And I discovered the key to beating the game. 
There's three moves that you have to make. And if you always make those three moves so that the board ends up looking the same, no matter how you turn it, if you know those three moves, you can always end up a genius. Can I tell you this morning that there's three moves that'll make you a genius when it comes to the will of God and knowing his will and finding the fulfillment of his will. Don't you want that? I would suggest to you that every serious believer in Jesus is interested in the will of God. If you're not interested every day of your life in the will of God, you're not a serious-minded believer. But if you're a serious-minded believer, you want to be able to please God. You want to do what is good, good for you and good for others, what pleases God and what is fulfilling, what is meaningful, what is purposeful, what is eternal, then you want to know the will of God. You don't get that from a school counselor. You don't get that from your parents telling you what to do. You don't get that from a career uh, a career. Uh, Opportunity where you see lots of different jobs, you get it by these three specific moves. Please note them. First, there must be a decisive commitment. There must be a decisive commitment. You notice again what he says in verse 1, I beseech you. I think it's interesting. He doesn't command them at this point. He's pleading with them. On the basis of what I've been telling you, I'm pleading with you, and he's pleading with the brethren. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. He's talking to believers, not unbelievers. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's a decisive commitment. Do you realize that not everybody that is saved is a disciple of Jesus? And not everybody that's a disciple of Jesus is saved. I don't want to make a hard distinction between those two because coming to Christ in salvation should naturally lead to being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you don't make some distinction here, you will misunderstand the Bible. For instance, you can be saved and not be a disciple. Think about Joseph of Arimathea or think about Nicodemus. Two men who believed in Christ, but they didn't come out of the shadows to really follow Christ until his crucifixion, and they took his body, and they put it in the grave. And you can be a disciple, that is a learner or a student of Christ, and yet not be saved. Think about Judas. Judas was called to follow Jesus. He heard Jesus. He did what Jesus told him to do for the most part. And yet we all know that Judas wasn't saved. In other words, there is a distinction between salvation and discipleship. It's one thing to come to Jesus for salvation. It's another thing to come after Jesus in, in, in discipleship. Salvation is about trusting in what Christ did for us. Discipleship is about what we are doing for Christ. There's only one condition for salvation, that's faith. But there are several conditions for being a disciple of Jesus, right? You've got to take up your cross. You've got to die to yourself. Uh, You've got to 
Have no self-interest. Let go of your self-interest. You've got to be willing to walk away from family if need be in order to be a disciple of Jesus. Eternal life is the result of salvation in Christ, but eternal rewards are the result of being a disciple of Christ. Now listen, at salvation you receive a gift. That gift is eternal life, but in discipleship you present a gift, and that gift is your body. In other words, what he's calling us to here is a a life of discipleship, a deeper walk with Jesus Christ, following him wherever he leads us and wherever he wants us to go. And that requires us to come and do what? Have a decisive commitment. What's the very first commitment you make if you want to be a, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus? Je- Jesus tells us, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, He says, go and make disciples of all the nations. What's the first thing he says? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then teaching them to, what's the word? Observe. Follow what I say. You're not his disciples because you say you're his disciples. You are his disciples indeed when you keep his word. The very first thing he says to do is to be baptized. Come out of the shadows Identify yourself with Christ. Identify yourself with his church. Identify yourself with the believers in Jesus. Step forward and declare that you are a follower of Jesus. That's what he's talking about here. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. This idea of present. Just turn back a page or two in your Bible. This same Greek word that's present here is used in chapter 6, verse 13. He talks about how you have to present your members to the Lord. Verse 13, and do not present. There it is. You stand by and you present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. But here's the word again. Present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. He says, I want you to come with a decisive commitment and I want you to Present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. Now, you can imagine the picture that's in his mind, can't you? It's the idea of the Old Testament sacrifice. A man would be coming to the temple or a person would be coming to the temple to worship God and they would be bringing their lamb or they'd be bringing their bullock. They're standing beside it and they yield it to the priest. They give it to God, and it becomes the possession of God. It's a decisive commitment. You can't hold on to that lamb or hold on to that bullock. you gotta, you got to surrender it all if there's going to be a sacrifice on that day, and if there's going to be discipleship, if there's going to be the discovery of the will of God in our lives, we have to come like a worshiper to present to God our bodies. You say, why just our bodies? Well, first of all, he's not, dis- he's not distinguishing your body from your soul and your spirit here. I mean, let's face it. Have you ever seen a soul and a spirit play an instrument? It takes a body. The body is the vehicle of the soul and the spirit. And when he uses the word body, he's talking about the totality of ourselves. We come in a decisive commitment, a crisis moment in our lives when we say, God, I don't want to just know that I'm going to heaven, that I've escaped hell. I want to be a follower of yours, devoted, fully devoted to you. And I come to that crisis moment 
And decisively, I present the entirety of myself like a sacrifice to you. I give that sacrifice wholly and fully to you. That's the kind of decisive commitment that God's looking for. This particular word to present, the the verb form of this word is a once for all time kind of a commitment. This is a moment in time when you say, Lord, I'm no longer living for myself and it's no longer about me. This is all about living for you and it's all about you. I give myself to you. It's a once for all commitment, but it's also something that gets worked out in our lives every single day. This past week, I had the privilege of joining a couple right here in the auditorium in marriage. He stood on one side, she stood on the other, and we went through the various parts of the wedding ceremony, and we got to that place where they're looking at each other and holding each other's hands, and he made his vows, his promises to her, and she made her vows, her promises to him, and then I pronounced them, you are husband and wife. It was a great moment. It was a great time. I'm grateful that I got to be a part of that. But all of us know that a wedding doesn't make a marriage. Figured that out? You can spend a ton of money on a wedding. That doesn't necessarily make a marriage. That's a once-for-all-time commitment that they made right there at that moment in their lives. But can I tell you, that gets worked out in their lives every single day as they remember and they renew and they refresh that commitment over and over through the rest of their lives, over the course of the rest of their lives. Think about it for a moment. Suppose that you were standing at that altar and Your husband or your wife said to you, honey, I want you to know that I love you and I'm going to be dedicated and committed to you for 50 weeks out of the year. But honey, I want you to know that the other two weeks of the year, there's another person in my life and I'm going to give those other two weeks to that person. (laughs) You think that lasts very long? Not. It would not last very long. When he says we're to present this decisive commitment, we're to present our bodies, the entirety of ourselves, as a living sacrifice, he means we're to bring it, standing beside it, releasing it to God, giving it to him fully, a once-for-all-time commitment and decision that gets worked out and refreshed and renewed on a daily basis, reminding ourselves we are not our own. We belong to the Lord. We are not our own. We belong to the Lord. If you're going to find God's will, there's got to be that kind of decisive commitment. I want you to notice that this decisive commitment is by the mercies of God. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, The word mercy is a favorite one. We talked about it in our songs earlier. It's a favorite one of the Apostle Paul. But do you realize there are so many mercies of God that are given to us? By the way, if your translation reads it in the singular, it's in the plural in the Greek text. There are many of these mercies that God has bestowed upon us. Just turn back a few pages to chapter 3. Look at verse 24. Romans chapter 3, verse 24. He says, being justified freely being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's the mercy of God. 
Look at chapter 5, verse 8. You know this verse maybe by memory. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Aren't you thankful for his mercy? Or look at chapter 8. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That would be a good place to shout right there. There is no condemnation. Or look at the end of that chapter, verse 38 and 39. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see the mercies of God poured out on us? Over and over, the mercies of God. He says, look, you come and you make this decisive commitment when you present your bodies, the entirety of yourself, acknowledging I want to be a fully devoted disciple of Jesus because I want to know the will of God for my life. And you come with a once-for-all decision that gets renewed and refreshed on a regular basis as you remember your commitment to God and you do it because you can remember all that God has done for you. Think about it for a moment. Suppose it's a cold, wintry night. You and your wife are sitting in the living room. you got a fire, a roaring fire going in the fireplace. Your house is warm and it's cozy. And just about the time you get settled in, the doorbell rings. You wonder who it could be. I mean, it's freezing cold outside and you really don't want to go to the door, but you go to the door anyway, and you open it, and there stands your saintly mother. She looks at you, son or daughter, could I please come in and get warm? And she points at her gray hair and acknowledges that this is gray because I raised you, and you put a lot of that gray in my hair. And she says, by these mercies, could I come in and get warm? And then she points at her faded and wrinkled cheeks and she says, these cheeks are wrinkled because I watched after you to protect you by these mercies. Can I come in? And then she extends her, her frail and weak hands and she says, these hands work to provide for you and now they're frail by these mercies. Can I come in? Now I know some of you mountain mamas have already thought to yourself, I don't need to do any of that. I've already got a key. <laughs> or if I get to the door and they open it, I'm busting in. Go with me in the illustration, will you? <laughs> Stay with me in the illustration. She goes through those things and she says, look, look what I've done for you. It only makes sense then, doesn't it? That you open the door and you let your mama in, and you let her find warmth in your house. It only makes sense when you stop and you see what it is that Jesus has done for us to come and to present our bodies a decisive commitment, a moment, a crisis when we recognize I can't live for myself. I've got to die to myself. I've got to take up my cross and follow Jesus. I've got to turn my back on all of the other love so that the supreme love is the love of God in my heart. 
And I'll be what he wants me to be and go where he wants me to do, go and do what he wants me to do. And I, I make that kind of a decisive commitment because of these incredible mercies that God has bestowed upon me. And then he says that this kind of a decisive commitment, it's reasonable. You notice what he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's reasonable. The Greek word is logikos. Obviously, it gives us our word logical. And when he says service, it's, it's our service that's rendered in worship to God. It's the logical reasonable response to understanding all that God has done for us. You say, I'm not sure I want to go that deep with God. Then you won't know the will of God as fully as God would have you to know it. You won't find the fulfillment that God has for you as much as he wants you to find it. You won't be doing that which is eternal to the degree that God wants you to do the eternal there has to be that decisive commitment when you come in a once-for-all decision that gets worked out every day as you remember and refresh and renew that commitment to God. Because you know what God's done for you. You say, Lord, here is my entire being. I want you to take possession of every aspect of my life, and I want to be and do and go whatever you say. It's logical. It's reasonable. A well-known author, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, puts it this way. If you and I were as rational as we think we are and sometimes claim to be, we would not need any encouragement to offer our bodies to God as living sacrifices because it would be the most reasonable thing in the world for us to do it. God is our creator. He has redeemed us from sin by, by the death of Jesus Christ. He has made us alive with Christ. He loves us and cares for us. It's reasonable, he says, to love God and serve him in return. And do you see what he says? This is a living sacrifice. It's alive to God. It's a holy sacrifice. It's a life that's been set apart to God. It's an acceptable sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that pleases God in heaven. Do you realize that a lot of Christians, believers in Jesus, aren't living lives that are pleasing to God? Because they haven't come to that crisis moment when they said, you know what? It's not just about getting out of hell and going to heaven. It's about living every day of my life as a devoted disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, I want the will of God for my life. I'm a serious, I'm a serious believer in Jesus. I'm not just playing the game. I'm serious about this matter. Lord, I come before you and I make a decisive commitment and yield every aspect of my life to you. The cold hard fact is that the reason God demands such a sacrifice is because God deserves such a sacrifice. It's only logical that he would receive it. Move number one. We have to make a decisive commitment. Move number two. There has to be a persistent renunciation. A persistent renunciation in verse two. He says, and do not be conformed. This is a command. Do not be conformed to this world. 
The word conformed is like the idea of a mold or a pattern that you're cutting something out so that it looks like what the pattern is. You remember when your kids were were young, maybe some of your kids are still young enough to do this and they had Play-Doh? Didn't you love cleaning up that stuff after it was all played with? And you get it out of those little short cans, at least that's the way they used to get it. Get it out of the short cans, peel the top off, pull it out of the can, and you could fashion it and push it and make it what you wanted. Sometimes they had these little molds and you could push that Play-Doh into that mold and then you could take it out and you could see the image on the other side. That's the idea. He says, I don't want you to be conformed to this, to this world. I want there to be a persistent renunciation of this world. Uh-oh. I don't want you to be conformed to this world. This world is the age in which we live. This world wants us to think like it thinks and value what it values and look like it looks and talk like it talks and love what it loves and live like it lives. The world is constantly trying to shove you into this mold. You don't think so? I was watching a a television show this past week, and a commercial came up. I believe it was a medication that was being made available. came up, and here is a homosexual couple. They're now in our shows. They're now in our commercials. They're going to desensitize us to that lifestyle. They're going to seek to make us accepting of that way of life. We should love all people. Amen? Amen. We should love all people, but that doesn't mean that we agree with all people. That means we follow the biblical pattern of what it says for marriage. But the world is constantly forcing us into its mold. The education system constantly forcing our children into its mold. You don't think that's true? Just listen to the uproar of this past week over a middle school teacher in our community. You will do and be what I tell you to do and what I tell you to be. And it gets worse when you get to the college level. And then you get out into the real world. And there's always somebody pushing you and shaping you. You understand this world is not your friend. If you want to be a serious believer in Jesus who wants to know the will of God, you've got to understand this world is not your friend. If any man loved the world, it says the love of the Father is not in him. That is not in him in a controlling fashion. If he loves this world... Our Christian faith isn't welcomed in the political arena. It isn't welcomed in the educational system. It isn't welcomed in the entertainment industry. It isn't welcomed in in the corporate world. It isn't welcomed in any place of influence in modern society. Just stand up wherever you are and say, this is what I tell you I believe, and watch what happens. They will belittle you and call you names and say that you're filled with hate, and you are divisive because they are going to force you into their mold. You can't know the will of God if you're being conformed to this world. You know, this kind of conformity is a classic illustration of it. It's found back in the book of Genesis. 
I don't have, I have just a few moments left, so turn back there with me. Genesis chapter 13. It's the story of Lot. The story of Lot. He and Abraham are making that journey together. Abraham's the one who's been given the promises, but they're making that journey together toward the promised land. There's too many herds and livestock between the two of them. There's arguments that are developing amongst the care and the keepers of the livestock and the herdsmen. And so Abraham says, Lot, why don't you pick a piece of property and you go that direction and I'll go the other. And in verse 10, and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan. Verse 11, then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan and Lot journeyed east. Oh, he's moving in that direction. In verse 12, Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. Do you realize, are you with me? Do you realize that you have to read almost through the rest of the entire Bible to find out that Lot was a righteous man? You've got to go all the way to the book of 2 Peter before you're said, where you're told that Lot was a righteous man. Why? He lifted up his eyes and he looked and he thought, ah, the grass is greener down there. And he began moving in that direction. And before he knew it, he was conformed and he lost his testimony. He lost his wealth. He lost his family. And he lost his own personal happiness because he became conformed to the world in Sodom. This world is not our friend. There must be a persistent renunciation of the world around us, the values, uh, the philosophies, the ideals, the goals, the ambitions of this world that are anti-God and against the Scripture. There has to be that constant renunciation of that world. You say, well, I don't want to live like that. Then you won't know the will of God to the fullest degree. Have we forgotten that the Bible says we're to be separate? 2 Corinthians 6, 17 and 18, Therefore come out from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things, and I will welcome you, and I will be your father, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Please understand, separation is about non conformity to the world. It's not about isolating yourself from everything and everybody. Maybe if I put it in these terms, it's about moving to a higher plane of living. It's sort of like moving to a nicer neighborhood. It's like getting a better apartment than where you're presently, where you're presently living. It means that you refuse to live in the neighborhood where the world's values and the world's vices are shaping you. It means that you settle down into a biblical lifestyle that doesn't necessarily have to be culturally relevant. And number three, the third move. There must be a decisive commitment. There must be a persistent renunciation. But thirdly and finally, there must be a radical transformation. It goes on in verse two. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but here's the opposite of being shaped by the world, forced into its mold, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's a passive imperative verb. Passive meaning this is something God, this is something that God does in you and God does to you, something in your life that he is at work, but you are cooperating with him. He commands you to cooperate with him. We do it by yielding ourselves. This word transformed is, gives us our word metamorphosis. It's about a change that comes from the inside out, not like the world, a change from the outside in. It's a work that God is doing in our lives so that we won't be shaped like the world, but that we will look like Jesus in the world. And do you notice what he says? Until there is that decisive commitment, present your, living, your bodies a living sacrifice and a persistent renunciation, don't be conformed to this world. And a radical transformation, transformed by the renewing of your mind. By the way, the Lord is working to change the way you think so that he can change the way you live, the way you see life. Change the way you think so that you see the will of God for the incredible thing that, God, that, that it is from God. And when you have those three moves, that, so that, in order that you may prove. You can approve by testing. You can judge something to be right. You'll have the kind of discernment to know what is good. It's good for you and for others. It's acceptable to God, and it's fulfilling and complete and whole and full. The will of God. Our primary need in these troubled times is not just for churches with more training or more organization or more preachers with a lot more theological knowledge. Can I tell you what we need? We need Christians who are consecrated to Jesus Christ. Love reigns in the life of the one that is committed to God. He can see life with clarity but the one who is uncommitted looks at life in confusion.